Part of it is framing the question that we are looking at. Who can tell you to do the thing you don't want to do? Because in the end, the people that have real authority of you are those people. Whatever else we say, whatever lip service we give to other people, at the end of the day, the people who can make you do the thing you don't want to do have authority. And that, actually, at the heart of it, uh, is what we need to wrestle with. And you can see the issue today, because none of us likes having anybody else tell us what to do. That's a cultural expression. We live in our culture, and the anti-authoritarian season of the, the age is true. And it's, it's true generally in life. It's true in the church. You know, culturally, there is an existential crisis of leadership and authority. In, um, in a battle between historical conventions, ideological pressures, and media manipulations, we've ended up with some very strange leaders. I mean, Boris Johnson. What can you say? I mean, personally despised, but politically empowered. Or Putin or uh, Xi Jinping, you know, personally charismatic but politically dictatorial. We've ended up with, all around the world, very strange leaders. And ecclesiastically, we're in this crisis of leadership and authority too. Not just the old crisis of the past, you know, how can you remain faithful when you're led by liberals? But now it's a church that's worse than that. It seems to be led by sort of manager types um, and in a crisis of finance and membership, which drives a whole load of other things. And even within our own constituency, there's the existential crisis of authority. The influential leaders of the conservative world, here and abroad, have been removed from office, some for moral failures, some with apparent relationship failures, but broadly under the banner of abuses of power. And that seems to be the common factors, even amongst the sort of alleged sexual failures So, you know, it's not just Jonathan Fletcher and David Smythe, but Bill Hybels, Ravi Zacharias, Steve Timmis, Paulie Williams. Each case is different, but there's a common thread below them all, the way that they exercised their power and authority in relationship to others, a leadership crisis. And those failures, of course, are nothing new because a significant chunk of the Bible documents the serial failures of the kings of Israel. I mean, that's the biggest chunk, isn't it, of how none of them got it right for generation after generation after generation. They'd institutionalised leadership failure, and yet it's part of our history. And it eventually led to the covenant reshaping judgment on the, of the exiles. So this is not a new thing. So how do we just, uh, do we just concede that poor leadership is actually inevitable and avoid it? That often our constituency have done that, you know, it, there wasn't a queue of people waiting to become Bishop of Absley, trust me. <laughs> so uh, do we just give in to that or do we um, uh, just hope for the best, hope that we don't get found out that our bit of leadership, even if we make mistakes, doesn't go public? So... As we look at this biblical doctrine of leadership, if you read the literature on it, and there's lots around, most of it assumes it boils down, really, leadership, to techniques or styles or approaches. What gets people to follow you, if you like? Or the balanced exercise of authority and power to change people, like it's a skill. You know, if you get your marketing right or your management right, read the right books and you'll solve your leadership problems. But what if leadership is more significant than that? It's my thesis really today, um, with a lot of help from John Frame, I have to admit, that leadership derives from God's lordship. Leadership derives from God's lordship. Um, 
We need to build on this perspective with two vital foundations, in fact. I think that might have come up a bit early. But anyway, these are the foundations to understand how leadership and lordship works around. The first is simply to recognise that our identity is formed of our responsibilities. We, to be in God's image is to be relational, it's in relationship. And the nature of those relationships are that we're to submit to the lordship of our God, but to submit with responsibility for others. It's there in the first commands of creation, in the mandate in Genesis, and the covenantal character of God's revelation of himself as well. Our identity is defined primarily by the way we're responsible to God and the way we're responsible for others. It's a a responsibility relationship. So we relate to God in loving obedience as creatures. We're his image bearers to be fruitful and to rule his creation that he has entrusted to our care. And therefore we need to honour the boundaries he set. Don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, Genesis 2.17. But we're also to relate to God's world as its stewards. We're responsible for things under God's rule. We're responsible for its welfare, to work it and to care for God's God. In Genesis 2.15. And that same dynamic of responsible to and responsible for is even then in the creation of us as male and female in the image of God. We're made differently, equally imaging God, yet distinguished by our responsibility. Expressed in Genesis as the calling of the man to name, Genesis 2.19. Having at least responsibility for the woman in that. And the woman standing in relation to man, having responsibility to him... By coming from him, 2.23, called to help him, Genesis 2.18, yet still in union with him, in the one flesh union. And I've reflected on that. I think the obsession in the Old Testament with genealogies is at least in part a reflection that our identity is not primarily defined by our achievements, but mainly by our responsibilities, how we stand in relationship to others, who our parents are, who our children are, who we've been responsible to, who we're responsible for. And the classic formulation and articulation of covenant relationship establishes the character of relationships between the creator and the creature. In the old you know, ancient Suzerian treaty genres, but it's the commitments of God, the responsibilities he will bring to his people and that we have to him, and the, the commitment, he, the calling that he gives us to be responsible for others in his creation, to express the covenant. But the point is that the heart of our identity in the image of God is the nature of how God relates to us. We're to submit to him and we're to have responsibility for others. And that has to form the foundation of our relationships. And incidentally, that also speaks, of course, to the identity wars that we're in, that means that who we are is more a function of our responsibilities than it is about some self-expression of inner angst, which I think underlines a whole load of what our culture is going through at the moment. The authentic you is not some sort of subjective quest for inner reflection, but it's the shared exploration of who we are in relationship. We are the children of God. We are defined by his relationship to us and our relationship to others. So that's the first foundation I want to build this on. The second is simply this, that responsibilities are formed by the word of God. That is how God's leadership is exercised over us. If you want to talk about leadership, it is through his word we are stewards of his word. 
And that's what leadership is in the end. God rules by his word in covenant. So his word has the power to create, Genesis 1. He's spoken it was so. It reveals the rightness of his character, Genesis 2. He speaks what will bless and curse humanity. And it enacts a relationship that he has with his image bearers in Genesis 3. He calls them to walk with him in the garden. Fellowship from his words and his challenge to them from his word and presence. Who told you were naked implies they were listening to a different voice than his. They were supposed to heed his word. And it's worth noting that God's rule by his word is not just something passing on something external to himself, like he just gives us a rule book to follow and that's it. He gives us himself. We've sometimes explored a few years ago about whole speech act theory, that actually God's word enacts. He is true into his word and and he expresses um, who he is, consistent to who he is, and um, expresses a relationship Um, to the object of his word so that's the harmony of the word and spirit what he says coheres to who he is and how he is present amongst us in the world so because leadership derives from lordship all leadership ultimately relates to whether the word of god shapes how you relate to the people of god the relationships of responsibility are guarded by the word of god guiding And that's the way that words have the power to change lives. And that's why God's word lies at the heart of all biblical leadership. Because whether in the world that he's made, the church that he's ordered, or the fellowship between us, we are in that covenantal relationship with our creator. So, applying that, does that then mean that the classic way to rule is to command people? Should that be the consequence of this? Simplistically, God gives us laws to command. He commands the new humanity in Genesis 1. He constrains them, Genesis 2, don't eat of the tree. He commands Abraham, go to the land. As part of, um, uh, you know, we've shown what part of the response in the covenant. And Mosaic covenant, the Ten Commandments and then the 603 others. It's all there then, leadership. Simply, you just got to tell people what to do. It's back in the, the pub joke. Order everyone around. Is that how God does it? Because if God does it that way, we ought to do it that way. Leaders make rules to command people. But actually, that's not how the New Testament or the Old Testament actually expresses it. God's rule is more than his rules. It isn't just what he forbids, it's what he commends. And how he applies his word in our lives. And how he walks with us with his word on the journey. It isn't just that God tells us what to do. He shows us his goodness and love when he does it and shares our life as we're part of it. So actually, the model that I want to describe it is, is leadership is by loving service. By the self-sacrifice that leads others. And that, of course, is the implication of Jesus' most explicit teaching on leadership in Matthew and Mark you are not to be called rabbi because you have only one master and you are all brothers and you're not to call anyone on earth father for you have one father and he is in heaven nor are you to be called teacher because you have one teacher the Christ the greatest among you will be your servant for whoever exalts himself will be humbled and whoever humbles himself will be exalted and and Mark adds in if anyone wants to be first he must be the very last the servant of all So servant leadership 
is distinctively at the heart of how we bring the word of God through the relationships of responsibilities to the people of God. Now, John Frame becomes really helpful here, to me at least, um, because his construction means that this isn't just submission to a command. He expresses it with three essential, there's always three with him, three essential and interconnected aspects. And he, uh, his, if you've read his books, well done, you should get a medal. But um, <laughs> if, <laughs> if you have, you'll know he does it with epistemology and he does it with theology and he does it in application as well. But um, the first dimension of this is he says that these responsibilities we have have three dimensions. And one is what he calls control or norms. This is about the power that God has in exercising his will. There is nothing that has power over God. What he decrees by his secret wisdom is what we see happens. And not with, notwithstanding his use of secondary causes in doing stuff. Control or power is effectively what you are able to enact. We can't command everything and everyone. But there are some people we can. And so one aspect of leadership is knowing who, when you're responsible for people, knowing what power you have to enact your will. So in um, human leadership, it effectively goes under the banner of jurisdiction, the area we're responsible for where your will can be enacted, the boundaries where your decisions can be made under God's law. You can be responsible for the law. Part of leadership is, you know, the law, God through God's word, is given you, but you have a responsibility to enact it. And that's part of this dynamic of relationship of the responsibilities. But secondly, um, Frame goes on to say, there's also authority, as he calls it, situational leadership, which refers to the right that God has to exercise his will. He not only can do what he likes, he deserves to do what he likes at the same time. His character defines righteousness and purity, goodness and truth, all those communicable attributes of God. Uh, all that is is shaped not just by his power, but by his character too. What he commands relates to the fact he is right to command it as well. And this dimension of leadership then is referring, when it applies to human leadership, is expressed through our order or oversight, the right to lead. Not just enacting law here, but the people who call us to account, who relate to us in relationship um, of leading, who give us the examples to follow, who commend what is right to us, if you like. The situation that we're in in relationship to others. And we can be responsible not just for enacting law, but for giving a lead and the ministry by which we can be those who others imitate. As Paul says, imitate me as I imitate Christ. That's the idea of a disciple, is a follower of who? This is this aspect of leadership. Somebody who commends the right and shows and shapes how you lead. But the third aspect I found quite challenging and often neglected, which is also presence or character. This isn't really in Frame's theology about God's omnipresence, so much as his covenantal presence, he says. That is to say, he's not just with us by default because he made everything. Here is he chooses to walk with us 
with his covenant. He chooses to be present with us by his spirit. It's the fact that when he calls us to obey and when he commits us to what's right, he is also with us as we're doing it. And he promises not to leave us or forsake us. It's about, in a sense, a commitment. It's calling. It's the character of leadership. And God establishes committed relationship to creation and humanity generally and to his people in particular in the way that makes this a mutual responsibility. And even when, because we need his grace to forgive our failures in this, he still walks with us in our broken fallenness. The forgiveness and grace of Christ means he is walking with us even when we're getting it wrong, which is his commitment to us and also is part of our commitment to others by grace in his presence. How do you walk with the sinners? And so when it applies to human leadership, it's effectively expressed in the distinctive way that God exercises lead, in the selflessness of his love, in the sacrifice of his service, in the holiness of his grace. See, biblical authority is not authority until it also reflects the way God exercises his rule in relation to people. It means our approach to the relationships of responsibility. And supremely, therefore, it is about love. It's about a leadership that flows from love for the people, for the person and situation that we're in. And, and Frame's point, and I think he's right, is that we need all three in play for real biblical effective leadership. It's no use making rules if nobody respects your right to do it or if they doubt your character in the commitment to it. So if you don't keep your own COVID rules, don't be surprised if people question whether you should be in charge. And yet you can see these three in play when God exercises his rule of people. So, for example, back to the creation mandate to rule and fill the earth. It's a call for us to lead in relation to creation but it first says, sets the boundaries. It says what we're in control of. We're not in control of everything in creation, but we are in control of some things to rule and subdue as we bear, bear fruit in the world. And there are boundaries, not to know evil as well as good in that. But it also expresses the true nature of human authority, so the control bit first, the authority bit, because God makes the world good. Here's a goodness that we're to replicate and to pass on. Or as I said in my consecration, to pass on faithfully what entire, entire faithfully, um, what I've received. You know, that we're passing on from God a goodness of his world. That's our responsibility to our creation from the one we're accountable to. But it also reveals God's presence. We uniquely image God in the dynamic of human relationships. We multiply his image um, to show the world, which I remember very poignantly when Richard Pratt came and talked about how the ancient world, you know, setting up statues was about that, showing who was in charge by multiplying image. And we're called to do that through marriage and through um, childbearing to actually multiply the image of God, to bring his goodness to the wider world, his stewardship. There's a, a missional call in marriage. Um, but So that's true in creation. Um, it, it's true in the marriage mandate. You know, there's a jurisdiction, there is a responsibility, the naming and helping. There's an authority, leaving your parents, cleaving to your um, partners. There's also a presence, the one flesh union without shame, an intimate union. 
And you'll, I think you'll find these dynamics in the leadership of the Bible. That sort of framework helps illuminate those things, I think. Um, but the fact that the very first human application of this is to family leads me to the conclusion that actually this is the model by which we're going to understand it best. It's not the only model, but actually family relationships, the dynamic of who's responsible for what and how those interact, is given to us as a dynamic from God to understand how his rule of us is expressed. So, for example, parents have responsibilities for their children. They have a responsibility in law. They set rules for the welfare of their children. They can be bound to those rules externally to not abuse their children, for example. But they also set a leadership by overseeing, by leading their children. And they're to be respected in that role, to give a good example to follow, to set a good path for future life. And they also model, in love, a presence with them so that their children aren't left alone, so that they can find forgiveness. They've got somebody walking with them on the journey. So if that's true, then leadership is primarily a family oversight thing. That's what brings together those three strands most clearly, as opposed to a control-focused approach, an authoritarian dictatorship or military command structure. That's if you overemphasize control. Or the corporate management structure, that overemphasize the authority of a hierarchy that, you know, I can just tell you what to do because I've got that job. It doesn't really relate to anything else. Or the life coach approach that overemphasizes being alongside you and never, never end, ends up actually helping you. That's present stuff. Over and against that is family. And that family context is almost incidental, but it's throughout the whole of Scripture. You know, in the patriarchal period, all leadership was family related and even in the rest of the old testament tribal responsibilities were for ultimately families you know there was a levitical priesthood from levi there was a davidic kingship from david and his families the family origins are all there and yet the most common description of the christians in the new testament is being brothers and its leaders were called elders which are actually family relational terms and Paul even uses the term father when he's talking to a church he's founded. That dynamic almost is so present, it gets missed. It's underlying these relationships. And the apostles clearly fulfill this new Israel family foundation, the church in Acts and Revelation. And um, as 1 Corinthians 11.3 and Ephesians 5.22 and following reveal, this pattern of ordered, loving, responsible relationships is intended to reflect the Godhead himself as Trinity, in whose unity and love are revealed the ordered responsibilities. The Father's norms, he's ultimately all in all, 1 Corinthians 15. They cohere perfectly with the Son's authority. Everything is under his feet, 1 Corinthians 15.25. And that's only enabled by the Spirit's presence. No one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Spirit, 1 Corinthians 12.3. So you get law leading in love, in perfect union under the rule of God. And that becomes the theological framework for leadership. And, and it's true, of course, as the Old Testament develops, those three get damaged. Instead of selfless loving relationships, progressively sin damages them. So in Genesis 3.16, 
Ruling replaces serving as the curse on marriage relationships. Lord it over rather than serve. Or in Genesis 4.9, autonomy replaces family responsibilities. Cain shouts, am I my brother's keeper? The answer is yes, you ought to be. But his rebellion is not. They're brothers. Or Genesis 4.23, where self-promotion replaces self-sacrifice. Lamech said, I'm going to kill a man for injuring me. Revenge rather than reconciliation. But it seems that family headship is that primary expression of a God-ordained spiritual leadership throughout the scriptures. And even when the families of the patriarchs become united as a nation and the roles and the rules, the orders of God's people developed, they're still defined by who you're responsible to, whose law you're under, who you're responsible for, to selflessly serve and sacrificially bless, and how you exhibit God's character, who you're walking with on the journey, who you love <coughs> to serve. And therefore all that happens is that leadership in a church becomes a larger family oversight. As the number of people that you oversee increases... Particular aspects of roles become distinguishable. Particular help is needed. So Moses in Exodus 18, for example, following Jethro's advice, sets up leaders over thousands, hundreds, fifties and tens. Why? Because it's hard to relate to a massive number of people. So actually, you break it down a bit. It's a practical wisdom. It's more than that. It's a spiritual wisdom, too. Under God's direction, the administration of the presence of God is delegated to Aaron and his family. Moses remains the one bringing the word of God to his people, and they set up the judges to administer the judicial law. So in practice, while every leader exhibits all three dimensions of law and leading in God's word, loving God's people, gradually the biblical offices focus those responsibilities. And so you find kings are developed to enforce to make and enforce the law. They have power to enact their will. Indeed, that's one of their defining characteristics. Their word is the law, distinctly. And therefore, they're responsible to God to express his role, rule faithfully. But they're also responsible for the people. They're the representative heads. They don't rule independently of God's rule. They are to bring God's rule to the people in faithfulness and that's exemplified by leading in the fight to live faithfully under God's covenant they become the ones to lead the people to battle if you like so kings have focus on those norms and laws of course the prophets are the ones who lead through the word they're the ones who inspire obedience responsible to God from to God for his word but to guide people in the way of truth that's the ministry. Their powers usually exercised through the king, calling the king to accountable to make sure his laws fit, if you like. But their character is expressed because they identify with the people that they serve, often suffering the judgments that they proclaim. And particularly when God's covenant people have strayed, the prophets suffer for the people as they bring the word of God to the people and then of course that final dimension of presence gets focused in the priesthood stewarding the people's experience of the presence of God the priesthood's responsible to God and his word to order worship but particularly to communicate the presence and grace of God through the signs of the sacrificial system which foreshadow the forgiveness and sanctification in Christ so the priest's role help the people know that God is with them which is a huge important role 
that we share to open people's eyes to the truth that God is walking with his people, even if we wonder in the face of LLF. And, and we know that the fulfilment of that is Jesus, who completes those three aspects in his person work. He is the Lord, he rules us, his word is truth, he leads us, his spirit is with us, he is present. But let's go back to the scriptures again. My thesis is that what God intends is to bring these three aspects into perfect harmony. So if leadership that looks like family oversight or headship is characterised by sacrificial service. Let's just interrogate that a bit. Jesus' most explicit teaching on leadership is in the Matthew passage uh, that we had up before. But notice he explicitly rules out leading like a rabbi. You've only got one master, you're all brothers. What was that leadership? Now, we, we have other things, but I think the essence of rabbinic leadership was that you followed your rabbi wherever they went. It was actually the presence-driven sort of leadership. You know, you, you probably, when you were at college, at least I remember one, uh, you know, the story of the, the rabbi's disciple who would sneak under the bed of the rabbi to see what he did with his wife and that sort of thing. You, that's probably the only thing that I remembered about it, but hey. Um, but... But Jesus says, God is your master. <laughs> you know, you're not supposed to be following a person. You are supposed to follow the Lord. And in the extent to which they follow the Lord, fine. But actually, don't be a rabbi to people. Don't take the place of following Christ. And he rules out the leadership of a patriarch, the one who had authority, because God is the father, ultimately. The one that leads us, is not a person in themselves. We have no popes that have an authority that we follow. We follow our Father in heaven, not fathers on earth, ultimately. And he also seems to rule out that teacher-instructor role, the one that we love as conservative evangelicals the most, imparting the norms of God's word, teaching the word. We're you know, I'm on a pulpit here. I thought about sitting on my chair. You know, I've, I've taken to preaching by sitting on chairs recently, but because um, uh, people concentrate better and I don't fidget as much. But it, it actually, it, here we sort of assume that we're above others when we manage the Word of God. And, and Jesus says, well, No, you're not a teacher. It's not your status. The Word you pass on is God's Word, it's the Word of Christ. We're the humble servants. We make the sacrifice of our preparation and service to make sure that we are faithfully passing on what Christ has passed on. It's not us that teach. We hope that by the Spirit, people hear Jesus. So in, instead, of, instead, Jesus, it seems, is expanding this distinctive servant leadership approach, this, which I'm calling the model of family headship or leadership. The leadership that God's calling you to be responsible is your servanthood. You serve in holiness and grace and blessing. You serve holiness under the law of God. You serve in grace as you lead people with God's word. You serve in bringing his presence of blessing by the Spirit. That's what brings these three dimensions together. 
you lead by sacrificially serving others. That's what I think finds fulfilment in serving family headship as well. Parents sacrificially serve their children. I used to have fun in marriage preparation just reminding people that if you're a humanist, you'd be an idiot to get married. Because you give up everything that humanists say you should live for. Because you have less time, less money, less energy, um, more responsibilities, more heartache, more grief. You lose everything that the world says you need most. So what are you doing getting married? I have had two people who've um, separated before they got married as a result of my marriage preparation. Anyway. Uh, it It is sacrifice that marks family leadership, isn't it? Parents serve, they establish the right norms, set some rules to follow. They teach by giving the right sort of respect. We honour one another in the boundaries and the leadership we give, and we share our lives. But it's not just Jesus. Paul, when he expresses apostolic leadership in uh, 1 Thessalonians 2, uh, does a similar thing. Um, His leadership responsibility in in, uh, 1 Thessalonians 2, he says his primary calling is from God's word. So in verse 4 it says, we speak of men approved by God to be entrusted with his gospel. We're not trying to please God who tests our hearts. We didn't use flattery or put a master cover greed. We're not looking for praise from men, from you or anywhere else. And then verse 13, we continually thank God because when you received the word of God which you heard from us, you accepted it, not as the word of men, but as it actually is, the word of God which is at work in you who believe. So his primary context is the word. He's passing on the word of God. That's the essence of his leadership. But then what does it look like? He says, I'm sacrificially sharing your life like a mother. Verses 6 to 8 of uh, 1 Thessalonians 2. A fellowship face says, apostles, we could have been a burden, but we were gentle like a mother caring for her children. We loved you so much. We were delighted to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our lives as well, because you've become so dear to us. So he shares them sacrificially in their life. He shares them by leading them in their faith. He sets them a gracious example. He says, verse 9, You remember, brothers, our toil and hardship. We work night and day not to be a burden to you or anyone else while we preach the gospel. You're our witnesses, and so is God, of how holy, righteous, and blameless we were among you. The lead he gave was exemplary. He showed them what was good in the sacrifices that he made. It cost him to lead that way. But he establishes the goodness of God's gift. And he finally also talks about the norms as well. As he passed on God's word, he urged their obedience. You know we dealt with you as a father deals with his children, encouraging, comforting, and urging you to live lives worthy of God who calls you into his kingdom and glory. He passes on boundaries and challenges obedience. So what's striking for me about that is that when Paul at various moments, could have called for obedience just because of his office, his jurisdiction or his history as an apostle. He doesn't. He doesn't tell them that they owe him because he's their founder or that they owe him because he's set them an example to follow or that he even, that because he's been with them for a long period of time, instead he refers them back to Christ and he serves them in Christ. None of those were wrong to him. In fact, he says, I could have done this, but I didn't. We looked at that a little bit in the um, seminar session. That's how Paul leads by default. So 1 Corinthians 9, Paul has the right to material support from the Corinthian church. And he even quotes the Bible saying, these are the norms that command it. 
But he says, I didn't do it, did I? Because I wanted to communicate grace. He expected their financial support, not because of the norms that God commanded or his authority that he was an apostle. That's verse 14 for the first one, verse 7 the other. Or that he simply was living among them and needed help. He's most moved by his desire to serve them and not burden them and express that service that he sees coming from Christ. And in a similar way in 1 Corinthians 11, when arguing about communicating a proper relationship between husbands and wives in the church, he addresses the freedom that some of the women were exercising in a way that dishonoured their husbands. Paul could have said, I'm an apostle, do what I say. Instead, he argues from creation about God's order in relationships, verses 7 to 10 there, man wasn't made from woman, woman for man. And then from the equality norms in creation, verse 11 to 12, in the Lord, woman's not independent from woman, man or a man from woman. And then finally, in verse 16, he appeals to common practice as well. If anyone's inclined to be contentious, we've got no sort of the practice, nor do the churches of God. And then he concludes by saying, follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. Any one of those could have been decisive, but he comes back to the sacrificial service of Jesus. It's not that he doesn't have control, because he's an apostle. It doesn't, it's not that he doesn't have authority, because he's led and nurtured the churches into their existence. It's not that he hasn't even got their presence. That weird thing about 1 Corinthians 5, when he's present with them, when they discipline in the church. But he prays daily for the churches. But rather, when it comes to leading, he defaults back to expressing selflessly this sacrificial service. He's under God's control. The law of God he brings them. He's under God's authority. He leads them in Jesus' way. And he is under God's presence in the spirit-filled life that he loves them with. So it does seem to me that modelling this servant leadership, we need to establish for us those three things. We need to establish our jurisdiction. What do you control? in your ministry your real actual power to do things what is it legally what is it practically under the lord who can you service so who are you responsible under god to serve but also and this is harder to establish what is your authority who are you accountable to if the first is who you're accountable for who are you accountable to who directs you under God? Because in that network of relationships, you can't say, only Jesus can, you can't say, it's just basically God above me. Your identity isn't to be the Pope in his self-declared infallibility. So who are you? Who are you under? And be real about that. And also the character, who is showing you and sharing your life with you in living out that calling. Because a detached, disconnected oversight is no oversight. If you don't relate to the people, you are not relating. And if leadership is to be real, those three aspects need to be clear. Who we're responsible um, for who we're serving, who we're responsible to, who's over us, 
and how we're responsible in relationship to service. So for an example in practice, for an Anglican minister, your license establishes your jurisdiction. That gives you some boundaries to your responsibility. That's the law bit, says you can only do this. I mean, I'm very conscious of that. My new role, um, I, have a, I can only serve within the jurisdiction of other bishops, which means I don't have a right to go and establish churches in, in a different place. I can do it once they've either delegated responsibilities or given me permissions or things like that. But that right isn't established actually by them. It's not their personal jurisdiction over me. That's established by law. There are boundaries they are responsible to and for. They're responsible for an area, and in that they can delegate part of that responsibility. It's a legal thing. But at the same time, our ordination establishes our authority. That is to say, what was the ordination? What was the consecration about? We are to minister God's word to the people. Isn't that at the heart of all the ordination, the consecration services? That's what the symbolism is. We bring the word of God to the people of God. That's our charge and that's our, uh, that's our authority. Um, and we enact that. And then finally, it's actually our training that establishes our character, isn't it? That helps us understand the way to minister and who we minister with. And it's vital. That's where you make mates that help you keep going. And I know we don't make it a formal part of our thing, but it's, if this is right, that's a vital part of actually being a faithful minister, is to know who your friends are, to know who you're walking with in the journey, to actually share your ministry with others. And you can do that locally in the church by a bit more shared leadership. You can do it in different ways. Now before, um, I can't remember what my timing is here, but anyway, let's plough on just a bit more. Because I, I do want to just touch on how you're then responsible to oversight. Um, how to be under others, if you like, and just fleshing this out a bit. How can you be responsible to leaders? Um, what's God expect of us if there is a godly leadership? Well, we're, we're called to obey the law, to live within the boundaries that God set, we're called to follow the lead that God ordains, to go in the direction that faithful leaders give us. And we're called to submit to those who love you. And if you want to sum those up in one word, I think it's the word honour. Which is not a common word in these things, but honour your leaders. You can talk about in submission, that is acknowledge that they're responsible for you. That's another word that works as well. But we are to put ourselves under the oversight of our leaders. And that means showing them the respect they are due. That's the fifth commandment for a family. Honour your father and mother. That's how authority works out in a family. Honour. We honour the rulers whose laws we love under, live under by common grace. So Romans 13 verse 1, be subject to every law and authority. 1 Peter 2 verse 17... Everyone must submit to the authorities. Um, there's no authority except that which God established. So we honour them by our obedience. We honour our leaders who give God's direction to our lives through his word. Hebrews 13 was mentioned last night. Remember your leaders who spoke the word of God. Consider the outcome of their life. Imitate their faith. 
And again, verse 17, the elders who direct the affairs of the church are worthy of double honour, especially those whose work is preaching and teaching. And we honour those who love us enough to share a life with us. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love, Romans 12.10. Honour one another above yourselves. Do you honour your leaders? That's not about being sort of extra nice to them in a sort of... I'm going to try to find another word for obsequious, but anyway, um, whatever that word is. It's not about putting on pretensions, but actually, genuinely honouring them. Those who we honour, either in the law or in the lead or through their love, are the ones who can tell us what we don't want to do. Now, let me just pause for a moment. There might be a few questions on this, but I've got just um, a couple of questions that might just tease this out in your own head. Think about who has most helped you be in the role that you have now. So you've ended up in whichever particular calling you have. Which of these aspects was most influential in shaping who you are? Was it getting appointed to an official role? Was the trigger because you got elected to the PCC or you were made a lay reader or something like that? Was it because you got some sort of recognition and given a legal responsibility in the church? Was that the thing that's taken you where you are? Or was it because you were asked to do a ministry with some responsibility? Somebody at some point said, will you lead a home group or will you run a church activity or something where you were delegated a ministry and that was the trigger or was it that you shared with someone in a more senior ministry you went on a mission or you were in a preaching group now I'd be interested just as a quick straw poll to know which was most influential for you if you can work out those things there was a bit of a dynamic so how many here would say they've ended up where they are now because the first step was being licensed to do something made a reader or um, some legal process gave them authority in the church anyone interesting as we battle law at the moment how many would say it's because they were given a ministry with responsibility and that that was a trigger so a few more maybe 40 percent and how many was because you shared a ministry with somebody who inspired and led you and that's probably the other, yeah. It is interesting, isn't it? All of those aspects come in, but those relational things end up more important than the legal things. Which shouldn't surprise us because covenants are relational in the end. The law has its place, as Lee was reminding us this morning, but the end of our faith is not the law. It's the grace that brings us to faith and in relationship. Um, now, I've got a choice here. I think I've got ten minutes. Is that right, somebody? Yeah? Yes. Yes, okay. I, I can talk about overseers or can talk about problems. Um, I can blast through overseers very quickly and get to some problems if you like. <laughs> um, 
but does that sound like a bit more useful? Just because I think what we're doing the seminar is possibly uh, uh, Andy very kindly, Andy Lyons has very kindly said we could have a bit of a dialogue and and do a little bit of an interaction on it. So um, here's here's what I was going to say about overseers. Actually, if you're an overseer, you basically are different because of your your jurisdiction order and character. Um, that basically you're not just a disciple, you're more than a disciple because you have a different responsibility. You're responsible still to God, but you're responsible for others in a different way than a normal disciple is. And we're all responsible to God, but disciples are also responsible to overseers, overseers are to others. And those three things work out um, in, uh, in doctrine, um, discipline, and direction. Those are my three, where law, lead, leading law and love fit in. Um, what's that? And, and so basically, and I do like the one holy Catholic and apostolic church picture of who we are together, um, we're to, to lead by bringing God's word. That's the apostolic dimension. Bishops, distinct from overseers, express that by ordination and confirmation so that they're, um, if you like, the ones who are charged with making sure that the job of being faithful followers of God's word gets done in the local church. Their job is not to control your ministry, it's to make sure that you stay on board with it and that you're doing that thing. That's what's so painful about the current situation we're in. The discipline thing is about the law, to be obedient to the law of Christ, to be holy. And again, bishops are just different because they visit and excommunicate people, and at least they should do. Um, But the visitation is to make sure that you are faithful in that leading and that you're not being abusive. That's a good thing. Safeguarding is a thing we need to take to heart because we can get it wrong and do if we're not accountable to anyone. So the bishop's role is, in a sense, to keep people accountable to that law. It's not a different... So what I'm trying to tease out very quickly is it's not a different office. It just is a different responsibility. A presbyter of presbyters is still a presbyter, if you're with me. They're just simply saying, actually... A bishop, what I've been called to do is to make sure that those ministers under my charge do the thing that I'm supposed to be doing as well, which is taking charge of the people in their doctrine, discipline and direction. The the direction thing is just pointing out the two dimensions to that. One is outward to the community, to reach and serve, to reach everyone. So you can't just talk to your mates. The whole world needs to hear the gospel. But also to connect with others in mission, to be united in that. And actually, the, the direction comes from a bishop when they're con, um, cohering those sorts of things, um, bringing resources together, coordinating things, and when they're connecting people together so that it's very easy to be just focused on yourself. But actually, to be effective in mission, particularly in a networked society, we need to connect in with each other. So uh, a bishop's role to do that. So that's a bit of a tease. You can maybe ask some questions. Um, I'll just get on some problems. Uh, here's, here's my answer to the question, though. Who, whoever's, who can tell you to do the thing you don't want to do? Well, whoever's oversight you honour. The person who's lawfully responsible, who has the power to ask it, who faithfully leads with authority from God's word to ask you to do things, and who shares your life with a heart to walk with you in what is asked. And, and given that I started prepping this talk um, more than 12 months ago, one of the painful things for me is that I think I found this answer in ending up being consecrated. Who can tell you to do the thing you don't want to do? Well, who had the law to do that in the church? Lawfully appointed people 
who are calling me to do something that is certainly in its conception and even in the charge I was given in the consecration upholds the faithfulness to God's word. Not counting the unworthiness of the ministers who do it, but I mean, I feel that as much as how quick it is to point at other people. But they were, was it unfaithful to say that somebody like Eby could be a bishop? I know we tend to think not. And he'll walk with us on the journey. Well, that remains to be seen. But we trust. We trust. So let me just spend the last five minutes in flagging up a balance thing. Um, If we're to balance these things in leadership, to balance control, authority and presence, again, practical question, we have to do this. And the way you do it will probably reflect which priority you give to these three aspects and maybe where we need to compensate for our inclinations. So, how do you get your teenager up for school in the morning? Practical question of family headship. What's your default approach? Is it control? Get up because I tell you to. You make the rules. You expect them to comply. Well, good luck with that. Is it your authority? You've got to get up now or you'll be letting me down, you'll let the school down, you'll be letting yourself down. You honour your relationships, you expect other people to honour them too. Or is it your presence? Let me help you get out of bed. I'm up already, I've got your stuff ready, let's go. You seek to inspire them by your personal example. Now, I don't know the answer to that question for you, but it's interesting, isn't it? Those three aspects of authority all play in family relationships. And you negotiate it, and you probably prefer one rather than the other, and some are more successful in their strategies than other. Okay, let's earth it in the church then. How do you lead the church to launch a new ministry then? All right? We're going to do this because I think it's right. I'm in charge and I'll pick the team and we'll do it. Do it because I say so. That's the control dimension. Or do you say, we're going to do this because all the resources and talents will be best used in this way with the responsibilities we have. I'm enabling you, if you like. We'll pray together. We'll develop it together. Mobilising people, if you like. Or do you do it by your presence? I'm going on this journey. Who's with me? I'm going this way. We'll try it out. Let's see what support we get. And as you lead that new ministry and somebody resists you, as they will, what do you see is their problem when they say no to you? Is it because they're disobeying you? Is it because they're disrespecting you? Or is it because they're just disconnected from you? Because those are the three dimensions. If you're worried about control, you'll be worried that they're disobedient. If you're worried about their authority, ministry thing, you'll be worried about disrespect. And if you're worried about their presence, you'll be worried that they're disconnected. So so why is leadership so hard to do? Uh, It actually means if we're going to get that best best, um, balance, if you major on control, you will love making and enforcing rules. It is a common model to command and rule people, to make people what you want to be. But actually... It leads often to fear. Are you sound? Because you told 
somebody this is what they ought to do and what they ought to think. And the danger is it can end up in a sort of tyranny. So Vladimir Putin knows what he wants to do and he demands obedience to his law. If you major on authority, you will tend to lead by mobilising to, to work to people's strengths and, and compensate for their weaknesses. It's a, a leadership by power of role and responsibility. It's exercised by honour, recognising the contribution of others. It's a sort of leadership ex- exhibited in the monarchies, a representative headship, the classic presidential approach or constitutional major- uh, monarchy. But if you have that authority without power or presence, you have problems. You have the Joe Biden effect of somebody who sort of commands respect but is crippled by Congress and too old to command a presence. And if you major on presence, your leadership will be exercised a power of inspiring example, of modelling what you want people to follow. It's cultivating a, a virtue approach. This is good, isn't it? And let's hype everybody up to follow And your power and authority is the sheer number of people who follow you. It's the Vladimir Zelensky approach. The power to inspire others by identifying with them. It's fascinating, isn't it, how he started wearing fatigues. He never used to when he was a politician till the war. He wants to identify with his people. But if you exercise the power of the majority, you will tend to need to manipulate people in democracy, if you like, to maximise your constituency and possibly at the expense of others, a.k.a. Donald Trump. Very effective democratic politician. He mobilised a majority. (coughs) Bare majority. But doesn't make him a good leader. So interestingly, um, sociological resource on the the, uh, research in the concept of face, you know, losing face, gaining face, has these things. The autonomy face is the control thing, a fellowship face, which is about to be cooperative, to, to be accepted and loved, and a competence face, which is you've got to look intelligent, accomplished and capable. So your autonomy face is if you control, you're concerned about control, fellowship if you're really working with relationships, and the competence faith if you want to inspire people to follow. And ironically, you need all those needs put pressure the antidote, of course, to them all is that self-sacrifice. So at the heart of those things that brings them together is giving up of yourself in service of others. And I will blast through a couple of titles that you might want to just ask. This is, this is what I'd get away with. Um, I think I've covered these things. The need to be in control, the need to be accepted, the need to be seen as competent What do you do? Uh, When do you not do what your overseer says? If the law is unjust, you suffer. So sheep, you know, before the shearers, as Jesus in his trial. Or Paul, I appeal to Caesar. He faced an unjust process, still appeals to the law, even though the law's unjust. Or Daniel, obeying the king, except when it came to God, and suffered the legal consequences of that, even though it was unjust. And of course, 
it's worth saying that in a democracy, you're not just called to suffer under the law as a tyranny. You have the right to speak, so there is a right to speak out. But in the end, suffering under law, if it's under just, in an unjust law, if, if the lead is unfaithful, you speak up. 2 Timothy 4, keep your head in all situations, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, discharge all the duties of your ministry. You are to speak, preach the word, that's the context, preach the word in season and out of season. And to stop support, that's the 2 John thing, if anyone comes to you and doesn't bring this teaching, don't bring him to your house or welcoming him, or you'll share in his wicked work. Of course, not welcoming an unfaithful minister is actually quite easy for an incumbent in the Church of England. Because even a bishop has to have your permission to come and preach. You don't have to receive their ministry. Now, except in things like confirmation. But you're not going to die if you don't confirm people. There are worse sacrifices. And actually, the affirmation of somebody's faith in a local congregation is just as significant. I nearly got caught out of that. I nearly failed to get ordained in the Church of England because... My confirmation, I had a nominal confirmation in a non-Anglican church that I thought counted. And all the way through the process, I declared it. And uh, in my second year at Oak Hill, I was identified the fact that I'd not had an Episcopal confirmation. And they put me through a backstreet confirmation in somewhere. I don't remember where it was, actually, but anyway, <laughs> with nobody who actually knew me, um, just to sort of tick the box, really. But... You know, my real confirmation was after I came to faith, stood up in front of a congregation and gave testimony. Anyway, sorry, that's a little aside. I've always run out of time. But, um, but if the lead is, if the life towards you is unloving, serve them. I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you that may be sons of your Father in heaven. The question of who you share your life with is expressing the fact that Again, as Lee reminded us this morning, nobody has been marked beyond God's power to change. When we break relationships, as long as you're not compromising to be in a relationship, but if you break relationships, you deny people from hearing the gospel that can save them. You deny the possibility of it. If we want to see the Church of England come back to a biblical faith, at some point we need to exercise godly oversight and share life with them. And sometimes God uses that sacrificial service just to change things, maybe only in a little way. It's one of the joys of being in Chester Diocese to know that over the last 20 years we have conservative ministers on every board at every level of the wider church, right up to the director of mission. Which is not, oh, we're great. It's just that servanthood can be done with integrity and sometimes opens the door by God's grace to be an influence. And if it doesn't, if the law is unjust, suffer it. And if the lead is unfaithful, speak up. You may not be able to support it. And if life is unloving, just serve the people and see what God might do. I'm going to stop there.